Good morning. The reading today is Jonah 3, 1 through 9. It can be found on page 775 on your pew Bibles. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not drink, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Amen. Lord, we want to thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for our families. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for all the gifts that that are just too numerous to to mention. Lord, we want to we want to ask you to help those who who have been devastated by the the hurricanes in Florida and and, and Houston. Lord, help those in in the UK that have have suffered losses uh, due to the recent terrorist attack. Lord, we we ask you for for guidance and, and for spiritual deliverance for the, the sermon that, that Cody will be delivering to us. Lord, let us, let us gather from his words the, the lessons you'd like us to learn. Amen. Please be seated. Growing up, I played baseball. And not realizing the view that baseball players have to softball players. I thought softball was the lesser of the two sports. Now, if you watch softball online, you recognize that it's actually one of the quicker of the two sports. But most of the time, when we think of softball, such as a softball pitch, we think of this recreational little ball floating through the air that's as big as a watermelon, and you've got a big old bat, and you can just cream it out of the park. And in many ways, the preaching of the book of Jonah, though I enjoyed Mark immensely, is a softball pitch for a preacher. Why is that? Because the the glory of God is as display on Jonah as in few other books of the Bible. Over and over and over again, we're not seeing a man that we should imitate. We're not seeing necessarily even a nation that we should imitate. Maybe a little bit this morning, but not certainly in long term. But over and over and over again, we see the glory of God. 
and the many different attributes that he has on display in this book. For instance, this morning we're going to see that God calls, God transforms, and God saves. God calls, transforms, and saves. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at this in three different sections. One through four, and then five through eight, and then finally we will conclude with some thoughts in verse nine. Point number one, the mission and the message. The mission and the message. You notice that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This is as if we have started back in Jonah 1 verse 1. In fact, if you just picked it up for the first time and read it and began in 3 verse 1, you would think this sounds like the beginning of a story with the exception of that word the second time. We note here that Jonah is receiving God's grace as well as God's mercy. As God desires to have mercy even on the sinful pagan Ninevites, he is having mercy on Jonah. God has historically not dealt well with rebellious prophets. We could think of the prophet in 1 Kings 13 who disobeyed God and was promptly killed by a lion. We're serving a God who who has given us second chances and we certainly see that in Jonah's life. Jonah Again, called to go to this city, Nineveh, a great city. In the Hebrew, it can be interpreted as a great city to God. Now, we know that when we look at a city and we think it's big or look at a city and we think it's small in the eyes of God, it is nothing compared to what he can create. But what we're recognizing here is that every city is of importance to God because God has a desire to see his glory Go to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every city. Thus, Nineveh is important to God. Even though the Israelites, Jonah particularly, probably was thinking Nineveh is not that important to God. All cities are important to God. Even in scripture, the Old Testament, we recognize that God has offered mercy upon wicked pagan cities. Such as Sodom and Gomorrah. He desires to see... Those who are evil repent. And we thank him as believers for Jesus Christ. Because in a sense he sent Christ to our city so to speak. The earth, the world. When we were enemies, when we were pagans. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So Jonah's been called to this city that's important to God. And you notice even on a human scale it is Large, Nineveh, verse 3, was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Well, there's a little bit of historical difficulty here when you're studying this. Jonah's, in Jonah's time, Nineveh would have been around only 17 miles across, potentially at its widest point. Some think as few as three miles Well, 17 miles would have been seen as one day's journey. And so a three day's journey would have forced then the city of Nineveh to be 50 plus miles long. And yet excavations show that it probably might have only been three miles at its widest part. So a simple exclamation could be given in twofold. Either one, 
what's being referred to here is the amount of time it would have taken Jonah to walk around the city giving the message of God. We're going to stop here, then we're going to go to this place, then we're going to go to this place. And by the time we've gotten to all the important places in the city, three days time. Or, another explanation closely associated with the first is referring to not only the city, but the thriving suburbs around it. And so, it would have taken Jonah a day to get into the heart of the city. A day to do his business and a day to depart from the city. It's as if he would go into the city, check in with the local officials, let them know why he was there, and then proceed to key parts of the city to deliver the message. I tend to think it's probably that one. Either way, he gets to the sort of the inter part of the city and he begins to preach. And you notice that it's not as if he just decides, I'm going to say what I want to say. Oh no, we actually recognize that God is not only providing the mission, he's provided the message. So Jonah arose and went to the city according to the word of the Lord. And he's going to call out against it the message that God tells him. And so if we're thinking of a message to a wicked city, what would be your sermon title? It probably wouldn't consist of a a few words. It might be you laboring in a study or thinking of a great pastor who labors in a study and, and if he's got one shot at this city, let's, let's go for two hours. Not eight words. Eight words in this sermon. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What? Where's the gospel? What about, what about God? What about Jesus Christ? What about the power of the Holy Spirit? What about repentance? No. Nothing. But 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. No mention of potential mercy if they're going to repent. No hope laid out for them. Second point. We'll continue here with that thought. The evidence of unbelief being repentance. The evidence of unbelief being repentance 5 through 8. Jonah preaches this message in in verse 5. And notice that after this message is preached from God, they repent. What a response to the preaching of God's word. This is, this is why preachers should preach, is wanting to see people changed and transformed by God. We're not just getting up here to sort of deliver some historical lesson on Jonah, or hope you like the way I craft this. No, my hope and prayer, and I trust you're praying as well, is that God's going to take this and do a miraculous work as evidenced here in the book of Jonah. We want to see God do a work of mercy in calling sinners to himself. So do you pray for the preaching of the word here at FCF? You should. Saturday night, make it a habit with your family that we would, you'll gather around the table, you'll gather around the bedside or wherever it might be and you're going to pray, God, will you do a work of miraculous saving? Pray for the fruit, fruit of preaching. Notice that Jonah preaches this and They believed God. Well, what did they believe? That's what the verse says, verse 5. There's no mention of God in a sermon, and yet they, they believed God. What did they believe? They believed in His justice. They believed in someone who had the ability to overthrow, which at that time was the greatest city, one of the greatest cities, 
on the planet. Leonard Ravenhill, an English evangelist, says this, Jehovah Witnesses don't believe in hell and neither do most Christians. The justice of God is evident here for the unbeliever. And they turn. It's really remarkable how quickly they actually do turn. It's not as if uh, we've given no time markers, so we don't know how long it was, but it was quick. Here a city of at least 120,000 persons, as we'll find out next week in chapter 4, quickly repents. And it should be noted then that this is not something that Jonah conjured up. It's a miraculous work of God in saving this city and causing them to turn and repent. And it's actually in contrast to the stubbornness of God's people, Israel, who do not repent and actually are about to experience God's judgment by the hand of the actual people who are currently repenting. Assyria would come in, Nineveh being the capital, and wipe them out, bringing them into exile. 2 Kings 17, 13 and 14. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, this is the warning God had given to his people, quote, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets, close quote, verse 14. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. We should be as believers encouraged and strengthened in our own repentance from sin when we see those hard-hearted unbelievers have the work of God's mercy shift their hearts. That should call us to be quick to repent as we see they are quick to repent. It's an interesting uh, note, the history behind Jonah's sermon here, the message that God gives him. Before Jonah arrived, sometime before, there had been quite a number of natural disasters that had taken place around the city or in the city of Nineveh, including a famine that is recorded in history and an ominous solar eclipse. And some have noted that the the city has been sort of primed for repentance due to some of these natural disasters or natural events that had taken place. They were, in a sense, uh, already in a doomsday mode, expecting these type of things to continue and maybe to continue by the hand of God. And so they are quick. Maybe that is the case. Maybe it wasn't the case. Irregardless, I think it's important for us to note this morning that in the economy of God, there is nothing wasted like a natural disaster. So whether it's Hurricane Irma or Hurricane Harvey or or an earthquake or or a bombing in London or wherever it might be, there is nothing wasted in the economy of life. No disaster is outside of his perfect plan. And in fact, God even uses these things in accordance with his perfect plan to draw, to pre-soften, if you will, the hard heart of sinners to his call to saving grace. And thus, as Christians, we are right to mourn the loss of property, uh, to mourn the loss of life or livelihood of those in the path of such things as hurricanes. But we're also right to acknowledge God's sovereign hand behind these things and his mercy and not allowing greater loss to occur. 
So these are, these are two parallel trains of thought. One being that we can rejoice that God is in control, and the other that we can even mourn the loss of life. In fact, it's even proper to assume, it's proper to hope for, it's proper to even pray when we hear of things like hurricanes, that God would use these things to see people come to Christ in saving faith through the circumstances of these disasters. Well, notice here the response of repentance. They called for a fast. The people did. Put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And I, I think that the, the order here in verse 5 and verse 6 is not as if the people got it and then it got to the, the king. It's probably some of both happening at the same time. Irregardless, what we do clearly see is that it's a widespread thing. It's across the city. And the word does reach the king of Nineveh. And he arises from his throne. He removes his robe. He covers himself with sackcloth. And sits and ashes. And he leads the people into repentance. This is something that oftentimes leaders of nations would do in the Bible times. You can think of Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20 verse 3. He set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. He's leading the people into repentance. And notice it's not sort of a half-hearted repentance. Verse 6 even, excuse me, verse 7, even the beasts are called to put on sackcloth and ashes. Well, we would recognize that beasts are not moral creatures. They don't have the ability to repent. But they're mentioned to help us understand the totality of the repentance that is being called for across this city. There is no one, 100%, man, woman, beast, whatever it would be in a sense, that is outside of this repentance. All are called and even are walking in, by God's grace, repentance. And it looks like sackcloth. Verse 6, notice he, he covers himself with sackcloth and he sits in ashes. Well, what is sackcloth? It's a very uncomfortable cloth. It was often made with black goat's hair. It was coarse. It was rough. It was thick. It was used for sacks. Think of your, your modern day burlap sack. And if you walked into Fredericksburg this week, with rare exception, maybe Austin might be a better place to go, you're not going to see somebody walking down the street wearing a burlap sack. And if you do, you're automatically going to think, something's up. Something's unusual in this person's life. They're thinking a little different than I'm thinking. And that's precisely what sackcloth was for. To, to be a visible outward expression of something that was happening on the inside. And it was unusual. So people don't take ashes from the fireplace and go, right over the top of their head. But if you see someone covered in ashes, your automatic thought is, something unusual is happening in that person's life. And that is exactly why they would put on sackcloth and ashes to depict repentance. Sackcloth was often used for mourning. If you got both of them together, especially nationally, it was to, pick, to depict repentance. These, these two things, sackcloth and ashes, weren't to elicit God's mercy, but were actually an outward sign of 
that which had happened inwardly that did elicit God's mercy, namely repentance. So, should we all go home, dig through the fireplace, pull out your burlap sack, cut a hole for the head, two for the arms, wake up tomorrow morning and say, honey, we're going to repent of our sin. Walk through Fredericksburg? I don't think so. Here's, here's why I don't think we should wear sackcloth today. Because biblically, as New Testament Christians, we are to, quote, clothe ourselves with something other than sackcloth. And we actually have been. First Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Notice, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Isaiah 59 and 61, declares that we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so therefore, when others see us, we, they should not see ourselves in a sense, but they should see the visible, the outward signs of, if you will, of the new man in Christ. Colossians 3 talks about this. It looks like kindness. It looks like patience. It looks like humility. It's evident more than just the clothes that we wear. It's evident by our attitudes and our characteristics and the way we conduct ourselves with others around us. And in fact, if you put these two things together, the fact that it should, the the new man in Christ should be visible outwardly to those around us, and you put it together with verse 6, that the king of Nineveh led his people to repentance, we have strong application for even fathers, you leading your families... To walk in repentance. You notice in in Genesis. At the fall. When Eve takes the forbidden fruit. And eats of it. Who is held responsible? It's not Eve that's initially held responsible. It's Adam. Who was given responsibility primarily. To protect. And he abdicated that responsibility. He rejected it. He fled it. And husbands, we, we, we should not do that today even. We should be those who are leading our wives into repentance. And that's going to look like lovingly at times calling sin, sin. Honey, I love you, but things in my, there's things that are going on here that are not right. And we model that for them. Notice the king led them by modeling it. But husbands, are you modeling that for your families? Are you loving your children enough to confess your sin when you sin against them, but then also calling them to repent of their sin? Naming it, whatever it might be. Showing them from Scripture. Modeling it by how you are repenting of your own sin. Certainly see the application there for us. Wives, will you do that for your children? Will you submit when your husband may, with difficulty even, say, honey... Look, there's some things I'm saying that are not good. Husbands, will you humble yourself enough when your wife says, Husband, there's some things that I'm saying here. What does repentance actually mean from the Bible? We have used this word quite a bit this morning. It's it's being used as if we all know and understand what it means biblically. But I trust that we may have a bit of a different understanding about it, depending upon your background. So let's just pause for a moment. And, and discover 
from the Bible an understanding of repentance. A doctrine of repentance, if you will. To understand repentance, what we need to first start with and recognize that it is the second side of the same coin of faith. So take a coin out of your pocket, one side's heads, one side's tails. One side of that coin is faith, the other side is repentance. The heads up side, if you will, is faith. So to understand repentance, we start with faith. What is faith then? Well, faith, according to Hebrews 1, excuse me, Hebrews 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is trust. Well, in what? What are we trusting? Well, is it the unseen? No, not at all. It's the evidence of things not seen. So faith is actually trusting in things we can see. Well, what should we look to see? Faith is believing in knowledge, what we can see, to the point that you put your entire life's trust on that truth. So we could say then, saving faith is believing in the truth of the Bible to the point that you put your entire life's trust in the truth of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection to reconcile sinners to God. But that's not something you're just sort of pie in the sky putting your faith and trust in. That's something that's evident in your Bible. And you're looking there for the evidence. Not an impression or a feeling. Thus, saving faith in Jesus Christ is not a blind faith. It is looking and seeing even that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, came to earth, lived the life you and I could not. A perfect one. Died a perfect death instead of a deserving sinful death on our part. And in his perfect death took our imperfect sin and assured us of his perfect, of his perfection and the hope of eternal life found in him by rising from the dead. That's not a blind faith. You can read that in your Bible. That's looking at scripture and recognizing the truth and staking your life upon it. Being changed by it. So when we wake up in the morning, instead of trusting our feelings or emotions to do the right thing, or that God loves me, or that I'm in a right state as a Christian, we don't trust our feelings. We we open our Bibles And there we see of God's love for us. There we see and are reminded of what God did through Christ for you. And then we live in the light of that truth. The truth that he believes. That we believe on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As the only means to being found acceptable to God. That those who do that will have eternal life. Do we always feel like that? No. But the truth is here. Will we live in the light of it? That's faith. And so if you desire to repent and be saved today, you need to recognize with great hope that this desire is not of your own doing, but is actually a gift of God. You didn't show up today and desire, I want to do, I want to change on your own. It's actually a gift of God. The only possible way one can truly repent is if God transforms a heart. And thus, we encourage you and we delight to do it with you to call out to God in prayer. Expressing the saving faith 
in Christ alone. If you're a believer and you find yourself discouraged by your sin this morning, by the amount of times you're having to confess, I've done it over and over and over again this week. Don't be discouraged. It's actually a sign of grace that you would even desire to confess that sin. That's not conjured up. That's a gift. And therefore pray for additional grace to turn faithfully from that sin. Faith is on one side, heads up side, if you will, of the coin. The other side, repentance. But pastor, what about this repentance? Well, like faith, we need to begin with an understanding of repentance that originates with God. Faith originates with God. Repentance originates with God. Repentance is actually a command of God. John the Baptist. Matthew 3 verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Christ in Mark 1.15. Repent and believe. And yet, that command is not only commanded, but given to us. Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted, God has given repentance that leads to life. Therefore, we can say that what God commands, He enables. God provides grace to comply with His command. And that grace looks like His kindness and patience toward the lost. Romans 2. 3 and 5. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? That's grace. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So if repentance originates with God, It stands to reason then that a definition of repentance will include thinking about sin as God does and changing as God requires. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, helps us by providing a definition. He says, quote, A heartfelt sorrow for sin, repentance, is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Let me repeat that. A heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. I believe he's correct. And I think scripture backs it up as we'll look at here in just a moment. But what we see clearly is repentance is simply, if you want to put it in a physical framework, is a three-legged stool. Take one of the three legs out and the whole stool collapses. So leg number one is a heartfelt desire, or excuse me, a heartfelt sorrow for sin. So an aspect of repentance will include and begin with, and scripture uses two words to describe this, brokenness or grief over sin. A godly grief. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Psalm 51 verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Repentance 
means that we see our sin in the light of a holy God and are crushed by the ramifications, the nature of our rebellious sin. And yet it's not to wallow in our our brokenness. It's not to just feel bad. That goes to self-pity quickly. But actually to turn to God with godly grief. Brokenness over sin is not necessarily repentance. Neither is grief over sin necessarily repentance. And yet brokenness and grief, excuse me, repentance without brokenness and grief is not repentance. Brokenness and a grief, if you will, are fruits of repentance. They go hand in hand. They have to be there. Leg number two is a renouncing of our sin. There's a theological term and others called renunciation. Webster describes it as this, the formal rejection of something, typically a belief, claim, or course of action. So we're rejecting something. Why? Because we believe something else. And John Frame says, to renounce our sin is to agree with God's evaluation of my sin. And so in our repentance, we are agreeing to see our sin and ourselves as God sees us. Weak, frail, and in need of a savior. So we reject our sin. And too often we think of repentance as embarrassment over our sin. Or they've repented because they changed their habits. But true repentance is more than just a change of habits. It's a change of heart. Transformed by his grace that acknowledges his justice and holiness. And renounces our wicked ways. Third stool, third leg of the stool, not just to renounce our sin, but a sincere commitment to forsake and walk in obedience to Christ. To repent means that we turn to God with a heart of faith, believing that he is the one who orchestrates the change and provides the grace to respond. The root cause of repentance is the word of God confronting us in our sin. So public shame for sin is not going to cause repentance. It may cause shame, it may cause embarrassment, but it's not repentance. The word of God is what starts this road of repentance. It confronts us in our hearts to recognize the vile nature of our sin against a holy God and known by this holy God. And so therefore, as a Christian, it should be a normal thing to repent of sin. Not that we lose our salvation if we don't repent. Not that we're gaining our salvation if we repent. Salvation is through Christ happening once. But a fruit of that salvation is repentance. Acknowledging our sinful ways, thoughts and intentions and turning again and again toward God. And as believers, though we are, we are covered and saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that does not remove the hatred God has for sin. So every time we sin this week or yesterday or this past week, God hates that sin. It's not as if he looks at us through the covering of Jesus Christ and says, I love that sin now. No. He hates it. Thus the reason And the need for Christ. To pursue holiness is to imitate Christ in his passion. 
in his passion for two things. One is the glory of God in his love of righteousness. And two, in his passion for that which his father hates, which is sin. So as we grow to be more like Christ, one, we're going to have a greater passion for righteousness. But two, we're going to have a greater hatred and passion for sin. They go hand in hand. Brothers and sisters, God is not dealing with one-time repenters. None of us are. We are repeat offenders, so to speak. And by God's grace, we will be repeat repenters as well. Walking in repentance. Because as believers, we are recognizing that there is no limit to the mercy of God through Christ. Seen and drawn upon in repentance. Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Christ exhorting us here, so be zealous and repent. Let's walk in repentance. Well, finally, in closing, let's look at verse 9 of Jonah 3. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. How do we know this morning If God will grant us repentance, how do we know that if we turn, we will receive mercy? Simply, because the Bible tells us so. Jeremiah 18, 6 through 8. O house of Israel, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I had intended to do it. Notice, he says, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. And that is exactly what happened for us at the cross. Christ provided, God provided an anger-absorbing substitute. That assures us of his mercy toward repentant sinners. And that is his only son, Jesus Christ. Christ's death absorbed the fierce anger of God so that we may not perish. Thus we can sing this morning. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our faith has a sure and steady foundation. The rock of Christ. And what the Ninevites may or may not have, but we certainly have this morning, is the sign that God has placed on Jonah of his mercy is the three days in the belly, three nights in the belly of the fish and his mercy and bringing them out. And for believers today, we have the sign of the empty tomb assuring us of the mercy of Christ, assuring us of the mercy of God. And so repentance for the Christian is not going to save a life. Only Christ saves. But God will use the fruit of repentance to evidence the saving work of Christ. God has the power to forgive anyone. And he will. Will you resolve today in areas where you have been disobedient to God to obey him? Will you turn and repent? Whatever that sin is. Small or large. We serve a God of second chances. We serve a God who delights to give mercy to repentant sinners. And he offers, here in Jonah and in Matthew, as I'll read in a minute, he calls, he commands, and he even provides grace to make necessary U-turns in our lives. To turn from our sin. 
And so will we trust him this morning? Will we have faith that his his way is better than the way that sin offers? Will we humble ourselves and repent? The invitation is offered, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Repentance. Will we turn? It's offered, it's commanded, it's equipped by God. But there is that aspect of us choosing by his grace to believe in his mercy and turn from our sin. I pray that that is is a modeling fact, is an evident factor, is modeled by us even this week in our homes, in our workplaces, and even in our private lives. In the precious name of Jesus, let's pray. Father, grant us grace. Father, here in a minute we will sing, O church, arise. And much of the evidence of the church arising is arising to follow you and to turn from our ways. Father, it's a miracle that you would have granted the grace and even then the repentance to a wicked city like Nineveh. From an eight-word sermon that isn't what we think it should probably be. What we see, Father, is that you are the one who does the work of change. You give grace, but we are to respond as well. And so may we be quick to respond, as quick as the Ninevites were And not like Jonah who is not quick. Maybe we be quick to repent. To confess our sin. To not harden ourselves. In the deceitfulness of our sin. Intervene upon us Father. Do what is necessary. Don't allow us. To walk in hardness. In stubbornness in our sin. But may we. Continually to recognize. The mercy found in Christ. As we repent. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing yet again.